Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelin. This week, several police officers disciplined for taking part in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Donald Trump sues Twitter in a case that legal experts say holds no water. A florist opposed to gay marriage doesn't get the help she was looking for from the Supreme Court. And Washington may have reopened, but one industry still requiring you to mask up. But first, let's talk about these police officers that took part in the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. A new report has just come out from the Office of Police Accountability. And joining me now is Kumo's Matt Markovich. And you've poured through this uh, entire report, all this documentation. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they're recommending that two officers be fired for what they did on January 6th. Or almost what they didn't do uh, as police officers standing there next to the Capitol. And just a little background. Six police officers admitted to going to the Washington, D.C. January 6th Stop the Steal rally that President Trump had. So the OPA, the Office of Police Accountability, found that just the officers going there to attend that rally, there was no wrongdoing at all. There was freedom of speech. They're okay to do that. It's what happened afterwards and the officers' involvement with that that the OPA was really concerned about. So what happened is that uh, it's real important to understand who went there. Initially, two officers did not identify to anybody, their superiors, as they're supposed to, that they had attended this rally and there was an insurrection there. They did not do that. When, they, when the, the staff command found out that they were there and did not report it, the chief immediately suspended those two, and that's the way it's been. Because that's effectively lying to your boss. Well, lying by omission. Yeah. You didn't admit to something that you should have admitted to. Uh, initially been proactive and told your superiors. That was the responsibility. Later on, when that came out, the chief asked other officers to self-report. Four other officers self-reported. That's why we have a total of six. Well, after the OPA investigated all the all six officers, it came to the conclusion those last four officers that self-reported, there was not enough evidence that they had any involvement or had any presence or trespassing on Capitol grounds, and they there there are no charges or discipline for those four officers, so they're off the table. But those original two, which is a reportedly be a husband and wife, uh, OPA has not officially released their names, and it comes down to this. After investigating lots of video, including two OPA investigators going to D.C., talking to hotel clerks and bar managers, just retracing the steps of the other people. That's quite the investigation yeah, from it the was, civilian agents. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, but they realized the importance of this. I mean, only 30 officers, according to AP, have been accused of going to the, uh, uh, the rally and the, being at the insurrection in the country. Only one officer has been fired because of that guy in Texas. For Seattle to have six officers out of 30, we have the largest contingent of officers that are reportedly were at the rally. So it's important for the city of Seattle and all this. I'm just setting this up as perspective. So what the Office of Police Accountability found that those first two officers that did not self-report essentially did not tell the truth to OPA about their presence and their activities at the Capitol. One, and so they were found, the the allegations are three against each, but in each allegation, the OPA found that it should be sustained, and the recommendation uh, for discipline is actual termination. One, because they were trespassing. There was a perimeter around the Capitol set by the Capitol Police that was obvious to people. They were inside that perimeter. As a police officer, they're up to uphold the law, 
you should not be trespassing. They were trespassing, and that's a misdemeanor. Uphold the law, follow the law, even yeah. when you're not on duty. No, that's one thing. Yeah. They allegedly told... OPA investigators, they were 50 to 100 feet back. They were they saw what was going on, but they were way far away from what was going on in the Capitol. Well, now comes this interesting twist on what the OPA did to get this evidence. They sent pictures. They went through video of their own. They couldn't find any video of the, of the six officers at all. So they sent the pictures of the officers to the FBI. They went through using facial recognition software with all the videos that are coming to them because they're investigating the entire insurgency and found a video that had two of these two officers involved standing right to the left of the Capitol steps below some trees right next to the Capitol wall watching people climb the wall into the Capitol. Clearly, that puts them right inside the perimeter and saying that they were not near the insurgents is not true. And they told the uh, OPA in their very first um, interview, according to the report, they didn't think anything wrong was going on. And that's where... I mean, just by... I remember that day, just by watching the video, it seems pretty hard to believe that anyone would think nothing wrong was going on. Well, you had officers battling with protesters, Mm -hmm. uh, tear gas, you had uh, uh, pepper spray, you have battles going on. How can you not think this is the a reasonable person, a reasonable, and I asked OPA director Andrew Meyerberg, would a reasonable person assume that what those officers saw at that moment was illegal? And he said, absolutely, yes. And that's the basis for why they're being recommended termination, because they essentially lied is a tough word right now, because there could be another investigation regarding lying and all this. But they, they didn't tell the truth to OPA investigators when they asked about where they were. So I uh, asked a- Andrew Myrie, the director, is there any evidence that any of the officers went into the Capitol? And there's no evidence of that happening. But there's no evidence that says that they didn't happen. So they just don't have complete, there's so much video out there, they couldn't go through it all. So that's the bottom line of that. So it, it, as it stands right now, and just correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the most that could happen to these two officers is that they get fired. Because mm-hmm. the most that they can prove at this point is just simply trespassing. There isn't any video or any evidence of them assaulting officers, right. assaulting the Capitol Police or anything like that. That's right. And talking with Mike Solon, who is the president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild, the union, and he brought that point up. As of right now, with FBI investigating and the Capitol Police investigating, no charges have been filed by the FBI or the Capitol Police against these two officers for doing anything wrong. Now, granted, the FBI is looking at people who actually went into the building, assaulted police officers. They're going after more of the egregious crimes. So these two were basically the only physical evidence that shows them there, standing there, watching what happened very close to the Capitol grounds. And the fact that the Capitol Police, when shown the evidence that the OPA had, said they are trespassing because they were deep within the perimeter of a restricted area and they should not have been there. And a lot of people, I think, would push back saying, well, all they were doing was standing there, just trespassing. But you don't have to necessarily break the law to get fired, especially when you're a police officer. Well, I asked Andrew Meyerberg about the difference between 
Joe Citizen standing there and a police officer. We've consistently said at OPA that we do hold officers to a higher standard, and rightfully so, right? You can take people's lives, you can take people's liberties, you enforce the law. Um, so you need to abide by the law. That's your job. So there, police officers are different. They're being judged at a different level than the average person because they, like he said, they carry a gun. They have the ability to shoot people. They have a tremendous amount of responsibility, and they're there to protect the law. And if they did not... But they weren't on duty at the time. They weren't in uniform at the but time. They're still there as private citizens, well, right? Well, that's, that's right, but their duty is a police officer. You know, they are there to protect the law no matter where they are. That's the assumption going into this argument here. So that's the questionable aspect here. Uh, should they have done something? Because they are Seattle police officers in a different jurisdiction, but watching what a reasonable person would assume is law-breaking going on. They're scaling the walls of the U.S. Capitol and trying to get inside. And a reasonable person, according to OPA, would determine that as unlawful, and the officers did nothing to stop it. So what's the response from SPD? SPD, uh, according to the chief, they're going to go through the next procedures, uh, a, due, a due diligence process, the officers are allowed to have under the SPA contract where they can respond to the, the complaint and provide evidence of their own. And then eventually the chief will make a final determination with whether or not they should be disciplined and be fired. I should point out that already the disciplinary committee made up of staff commanders at the SPD review the evidence and determine that the officers should be fired. So going into this uh, due diligence process and these hearings that the officers can have, uh, you already have command staff saying they should be fired. All right, we'll have more on the insurrection at the Capitol a little bit later on, but coming up next, Matt, stick around. We're going to talk to you about how it's the end of the road for a florist opposed to gay marriage when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula, still joined by Como's Matt Markovich. We're going to be talking about Compassion Seattle and Shama Sawant's recall effort, two issues that have to get enough signatures to be on the ballot. We'll get you an update on those coming up in just a few moments. But first, you had a chance to chat with Baron. Stutzman. If you're unfamiliar with who she is, she is the owner of Arlene's Flowers in Richland, Washington, and she refused to produce flowers for a gay wedding. That case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the justices recently declined to hear the case. But you had a chance to talk with Baron L. Stutzman. What did she have to say? Well, she was very sad about the, the U.S. Supreme Court not taking up the case, primarily because she feels it's, she's going to be facing financial ruin if the uh, state attorney general's office, as well as the ACLU, go after her for legal fees, which they're entirely in the right for doing so. But speaking with Noah Purcell, who's the solicitor general for the state of Washington, who actually argued the case in front of the state Supreme Court, he told me she's only really facing the normal fine of $1,000 for if you're found in violation of the discrimination law here in the state of Washington. And she's only going to be assessed $1 in attorney's fees from the state of uh, Washington. So it's a, and I told her that, and she was glad to hear that as well as her attorney, Kristen Wagner. Uh, but she still believes that the ACLU, which I did not get an answer from, will go after her for legal fees, which could be in the six figures, given how long this case has been. Well, yeah, this case, as we said, has been around for eight, nine years. I remember covering it when it first broke down in, in Tri-Cities. Uh, it became a national story. And I asked her, would she do anything differently? And she said, absolutely not. She basically says she believes that marriage is between a man and a woman, and unless, unless God changes that, 
then that's when she'll regret her decision. But she doesn't regret her decision at all for not making up a floral arrangement for Robert Ingersoll and Kurt Freed. Covering those initial legal proceedings, when that happened down in uh, Benton County Court, uh, I, I talked to Kristen Wagner, her, her attorney, who actually is from the Alliance for Defending Freedom, which is a religious organization that seeks out these sorts of cases. And one of her big talking points was, oh, the Attorney General Bob Ferguson, he just jumped into this case. He had no ground, no hearings. He jumped in. He he took over this case to make it a big political view. I remember asking Kristen Wagner directly, well, did Baronel Stutzman reach out to you or your organization for legal representation, or did you reach out to her? She refused to answer that question. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a political issue left and right. Well, it, it, going back, way back to 2013, there is some truth in that because this case started after the Attorney General General's office heard about this rejection mm-hmm. and then sent her a letter saying, hey, you know what, if you just change your policy about serving and making flower arrangements for mm-hmm. same-sex marriages, well, this is all fine. We'll, we'll, we'll forget about everything. Yeah. But she refused to, and that's what started all this. One of the legal arguments in this case from Kristen Wagner and the Alliance for Defending Freedom is about artistic expression. Mm-hmm. The creation of a floral arrangement is speech you could say it is a an artistic creation and can the courts can the government force someone to create a form of artistic expression which is what the state Mm -hmm. would be doing if they forced her to do a floral arrangement for a gay wedding and that's the bigger picture here that the u.s supreme court essentially punted on because there's other cases one in colorado involved a cake maker there's currently a case in in arizona where the same argument is being used and a appellate court Uh, affirm that argument that a floral arrangement or an act of artistic expression uh, you can't force somebody to do it one way or the other and so um, uh, Kristen Wagner and her team are basically defending that case in in Arizona I don't remember the actual particulars of that one but that's ongoing but uh, but what the Supreme Court did by not hearing the case is not answer that big overall question can you make somebody do something that is a skill of theirs, uh, an artistic expression, that's the big Mm. phrase here, uh, against their will, if that's what they do for a living. And that that argument uh, is going to come in front of the U.S. Supreme Court at some point. What uh, Noah Purcell says is that you can't use that argument. It's too broad. You can, if you you use that argument, that meant a, a person who designs a car you can't force a person to put a certain piece of equipment in a car or an interior designer of a house. For you know, example, like you, you take the, the, the case of a car. You, you, if you're forcing certain safety measures, you're forcing a certain design element it, into the design it, of the car. If it's a design element that's a creative that I created out of scratch or... Uh, I move one painting over to here to another one, like an interior designer. That's their artistic expression of how this house interior of the house should look. You can ex- start expanding that argument to a lot of things. And that's why he says that argument is false. This is Noah Purcell, the Sol- Solicitor General for the state, saying he says that's why that argument will fall on its face because it's too broadly interpreted. He said that when they argued the case at the state Supreme Court level, the justices were aware of that and asked those kind of questions. What's to prohibit this argument from expanding to all these other fields? And the argument that Kristen Wagner said, according to Purcell, was that there was no real justification for that. There was no answer how you could not how you can keep this really a narrow interpretation. And so the interpretation is through this case is that the Supreme Court 
essentially punted because they didn't want to answer the bigger, broader question. They're allowing the very narrow interpretations by lower courts to stand on how it affects a flower maker, how it affects a cake maker, but not taking the bigger, broader picture. Or lower courts, or in this case, state courts, because it was the Washington law against discrimination that was Mm -hmm. at issue here, not a federal law in federal court. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll have to follow that, uh, certainly, as things develop. But uh, the other two things we wanted to talk about in the race for Seattle mayor and and a number of other ballot issues that are going to be voted on this fall. Uh, Signatures are being gathered, close to being turned in, and and let's start with Compassion Seattle. Refresh my memory, what is this? Compassion Seattle is going to be the ballot measure, and it's going to be on the November ballot. I can say that. Um, This is a Charter Amendment 29, and this is basically controversial because it's two aspects to it. One, it deals with homelessness and and building 2,000 housing units an unfunded mandate, opponents say. And the other half of the uh, uh, Charter Amendment says, well, if people don't accept services and housing, if you offer them, you can basically move them along in their camps. You can, people say it's a permit to give out sweeps, to legalizing sweeps in the city of Seattle. And by the way, it's illegal to camp in the downtown area of the city of Seattle. I just throw that out there right there. <laughs> That's not enforced at all. Yeah, so... so, so um, so anyway, so they were able to, they needed 33,000 signatures. Um, they turned in 64,155, almost double what they needed. Now it's going through the verification process. Um, and it'll, it, most likely it's going to be on the November ballot for uh, city voters to vote on in the city of Seattle. Interesting, though, is that when they turned in the signatures, and we were there when they brought them to City Hall, which is still locked up because of COVID, they brought along extra people to uh, honcho these four boxes of petitions because they're afraid of retaliation. Uh, according to them and verified with police, at least four people have been assaulted and have filed police reports about their assault when they're gathering signatures on their petition. People knocking the petitions out of their hands or whatever and physical assault. The, the backers of Compassion Seattle told me there's many, there's other cases of that, but only four that the police are actually now investigating. And this is the measure that would do what exactly? It, it, it essentially gives some teeth to the city's enforcement yes, of these is, no camping ordinances, Yeah, this right? is a, it's a charter amendment, and the charter of any city is basically the backbone for the city. This is what the... the constitution for the yeah, city. Yeah, the constitution. Well, yeah. So what they're saying is that you ha- these are things that you have to do. A future mayor or a future council cannot just arbitrarily say, oh, we're not going to build 2,000 units of housing, or we, we have no authority to, to remove camps. This actually puts into the backbone of the city charter the authority to do that so that a future mayor and a future city council can't undo it, the will of the people. So the only way, if you if the city passes, the city voters pass this, it's going to take a vote of the entire city population again to undo what this charter amendment does. So that's what's, what's kind of controversial because the, the theory has been for the last several years, and we've been under a homeless emergency for almost six years now, according to, uh, that was first declared, um, that the politicians have not done their job. You know, people are tired of seeing the camps. They're tired of seeing people who are in distressed situations and not getting some housing. So this puts into the backbone of the city. You have to address this and you have to address it in, with housing as well as uh, you can you can have the ability to move camps along, a.k.a. sweeps. 
Yeah. The other issue that voters will be deciding on in the city of Seattle is the recall of Shama Sawant. How is the signature gathering going there? They're getting close. Now, they needed roughly 10,000 signatures to put it on the November ballot. And there's kind of a race to do that now. It, they have 9,000 and change uh, signatures. Safely, you want to have a couple thousand more than what you need because they have to verify every signature. There won't be duplicates and stuff like that. So they're on track. But, you know, I always thought that in in a district, District 3, where Shama Sawani is, where she has a strong base, that getting just signatures might be a tough challenge. There's paid signature gatherers involved in this situation. You have a lot of money on both sides. You know, you and I have talked about mm-hmm. that in the past. It was, a, as of last week, it was a million dollars on both sides. It's the most expensive race, even the race for mayor yeah. of the open season. The money's the coming in to, to defend her or put her out of office. But before that even happens, you got to have enough signatures to get it on the ballot. So they're not there yet. But they're getting close. It's not necessarily a, a hard deadline approaching because right. if it's not on the November ballot, they could still have a special right. election in February, That's right? Correct. That's correct. That just delays it to you're going to have obviously more people showing up in November than you would have in February or any other special election after that. So they kind of want to get it on the November ballot, especially when you have council races uh, involved uh, at large council races. So District Three people will be voting in two other council races. Um, as well as the mayor. So in their political calculation, it would be advantageous to have a higher turnout if they want to recall Sawant. Yeah, yes. As I think that through, you're absolutely right. You know, a higher turnout would bode against her staying in office. So their goal is to have it on the November ballot yeah. when, when more people are going to the polls. All right, mm-hmm. come on. Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your analysis and insight. You're welcome. All right, when we come back, Donald Trump sues social media when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Former President Donald Trump filing lawsuits against three of the country's biggest tech companies, Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Trump saying he is serving as the lead plaintiff in the suit, claiming he has been wrongfully censored by the companies. Trump was suspended from Twitter and Facebook after his followers stormed the Capitol building on January 6th with the company signing concerns. He would incite further violence. Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And first off, what law is Trump saying that these companies broke? Well, he says it's violating his freedom of speech, which virtually every legal expert we talked to laughed for a long time. And then they finally said that's ridiculous. And the reason it's ridiculous is it's the same reason that you and I continue to speak on on Como Radio is because the folks who own Como Radio let us do it. If they didn't like what we were saying or if we were saying things that would incite violence or or incite some horrible uh, thing that would happen in the public, they would say, sorry, Jeff and Andy, you can't be on Como anymore. And we could cry free speech all we want, but we wouldn't win because... Como is a private company, and they can choose who they put on the air and who they don't. That has nothing to do with free speech. Just like if you go to a local club and the club, you're you're being disruptive or you're ripping down the walls or you're telling all the other club members to riot. Well, that club has a membership board and they can say, we're voting you out of the club. And you're saying, well, that violates my right to free speech. It does not. What What the right to free speech is all about is the government not violating your right to free speech, not private companies. And that's why virtually every legal expert we talked to said this is something that's not going to pass muster in court. And I think President 
Trump, former President Trump, knows this. His lawyers certainly do, uh, because what he seems to be doing is trying to raise money off this, just as he did with his big lie stop the steal campaign last fall, where he would tell his supporters, look, your president needs your help. You need to send me money now. Send me a check so I can pay my lawyers and make sure that we go to court and prevent this terrible miscarriage of justice. Well, 60 courts plus said, no, there was no miscarriage of justice. The vote was accurate and there was no fraud and no election was stolen. Well, the interesting thing is, is that after the election, after all those court fights happened, we now find out that Rudy Giuliani is basically hat in hand going to the president saying, hey, can I have some of that money you raised to pay my bills? And we're told he's not getting it. And we don't know if the former president is paying anyone. So where did that money go? <laughs> that's a that's a big question. He's doing it again with this. Well, and, and you mentioned that this, uh, as a lot of critics will say, is just a move designed to rally his supporters and, and, and raise a bunch of money. Do we know if many of his supporters are jumping behind this? Are, are they sending him their cash? Are they writing him checks as a result? Well, yeah, we don't know. They haven't reported that yet. And uh, some of these PACs and political action committees and fundraising operations have to report this stuff quarterly so we won't know that for a while uh, you know it, it, it's it's pretty astonishing at this point that that this still is working and, and people are falling for this but apparently they are so in going back to this issue of freedom of speech it, it really doesn't exist here because joining these social media groups is tantamount to joining a private club that club can kick you out for breaking their rules this all comes down to say twitter facebook google's their terms of service, correct? It is, and and I haven't read, you know, I don't think anyone's read that. You always say, you know, read our privacy document, you have to agree to it, and everyone clicks yes, and they move on, but there's all kinds of stuff, and they pay lawyers lots of money to protect them from exactly this type of thing. I haven't dug into it, but I'm assuming that some of that language is in there to protect them. Uh, these are very well-off companies that can afford the best of legal help, so I can't imagine that Facebook and Twitter hasn't anticipated this and protected themselves against it. But this is something we've heard from Republicans for quite some time, accusing that these major companies, Twitter and the like, Facebook, uh, are censoring Republican speech as opposed to Democratic speech. Is, is there any truth there? There may be. And certainly it seems like there are more uh, Republicans and conservatives that are knocked off there. But it also could be that there are more Republicans and conservatives saying things that simply aren't true. You know, we see this continuation and we're seeing it now six months after the january 6th insurrection we saw with our own eyes with hours of uh, the insurrectionists shooting their own crimes in the capitol uh and we have republicans in congress saying well you know it was just a bunch of tourists it wasn't as bad as you said let's forget this and move on uh so the denial of truth is pretty strong and if these organizations think that denying that truth is somewhat harmful to society or to their organizations, they have every right to say, look, you know, if you're going to say things that aren't true, we're going to block you or we're going to label it as untrue. It does go both ways. It's not necessarily just targeted at conservatives, although I, they're probably conservatives that have a decent case that perhaps big tech uh, is going after them harder than other people. Uh, some of their arguments, some of the conservatives' arguments are, well, why aren't you going after the Ayatollahs in Iran who post incendiary things or, or folks in, in other totalitarian countries? And they may have an argument there. But again, I'm not sure that argument works when it comes to free speech because 
uh, even if the rules are arbitrary, it's their club, it's their baseball bat, they can take it and go home anytime they want. To a broader question, this seems kind of a, a slippery slope here because it, it now looks as if Facebook, Twitter, Google are becoming the arbiters of truth online. They're the arbiters of truth on their own platforms, not necessarily online. I mean, there's anyone can put something online. And that's one of the interesting things. President Trump said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to go create my own social media platform. Well, one of those attempts has failed miserably, and that was the from the desk of Donald J. Trump. And it was basically a blog where he would put his press releases up there. And the only thing you could do was share them to other social media platforms. You couldn't like them. You couldn't dislike them. You couldn't comment on them. So that's not necessarily social media. And now there is another new platform. Uh, I think Jason Miller, who's one of his advisors, has created this thing. It's a, kind of an alternative to Twitter. I mean, forgive me, I don't remember the name of it. Uh, it's already gotten into trouble because uh, as people sign up for this new alternative Twitter, uh, it turns out that it's pretty easy to hack into, and hackers have already gotten the private emails and addresses and everything else that you put in there when you sign up for it, and they're busy selling that private information on the internet. So it doesn't sound like a particularly safe platform to jump onto. I, I wanted to go onto it just to see what it was like. And when I read, well, they're stealing all your private information, I said, yeah, maybe I don't need to go on this. Bottom line, does President Trump have any chance of winning these lawsuits, do you think? And not according to the legal experts we spoke with, but who knows in what court you get. And is he going to fight this all the way to the Supreme Court? And will his Supreme Court picks help him out there? These are all big what ifs, and but most legal experts are looking at this saying this is not a freedom of speech case because these are private organizations and that that's not going to wash there. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, Republicans and Democrats continue to fight over the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. It has been six months since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. In a letter released by the Capitol Police this past week, acting Capitol Police Chief Uganda Pittman paid tribute to the officers who lost their lives defending the Capitol in January and charted a path forward for the agency. All of this while the political fight over an investigation into that day continues. Joining me now is ABC's Alex Prochet. And first off, what's the latest on the investigation? Well, Jeff, so we know the FBI has, uh, they're still searching for many people who participated uh, in that Capitol riot, but already the Department of Justice has charged more than 500 people uh, with actions related to that day, crimes ranging from misdemeanors to conspiracy. But, you know, when we talk about the the, the dragnet here in, in, in the manhunt, um, you know, there's there's still some 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 big unanswered questions, you know, chief among them. Uh, you know, the FBI is still looking for that suspect who placed pipe bombs outside the DNC and the RNC the night before the riots. There's a number of other individuals uh, who have been prominently photographed inside the Capitol that that, that haven't yet been uh, tracked down. So still still a lot on that front. The people being arrested come from all across the country. In fact, we had Ethan Nordine uh, from this area, one of the alleged organizers of the attack. Is that where the investigation is focused on, on, on sort of the ringleaders of the January 6th riot? Well, I think it's the ringleaders, but also I think it's, it comes from from tips that they get from from people identifying. You know, there, there's been a lot of instances where where family members or members of the community have recognized people uh, whose faces have been pushed out there by law enforcement and been like, hey, that's, you know, so and so who lives down the block 
from me. And, 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 and that's been a, a, a major tool. So, you know, whether it's someone in Eastern Washington that gets picked up, maybe it's somebody, somebody in Michigan, um, but, you know, that the public recognizing and also being willing to tip off law enforcement uh, has, has really been key here. What's the situation like now in and around the Capitol? Because we just celebrated uh, the nation's Independence uh-huh. Day. Uh, and for the longest time, you had uh, fencing around the area. It was closed to the public as a result of COVID. And obviously, security was a lot very tight following the January 6th attack. Has all of that changed? It, it has changed a lot, Jeff. And I will tell you because I actually I was reporting from the Capitol on Inauguration Day. And we had to go through military checkpoints. Uh, there were barricades where you couldn't drive vehicles through uh, multiple, multiple layers of security there. And a lot of that fencing has been taken down. Uh, some more fencing will continue to come down uh, in, in in the coming weeks. The National Guard, which was stationed at the Capitol, had been stationed at the Capitol uh, after January 6th. They left towards the end of May. And so so that whole National Mall area looks starkly different than it did just a few months ago. But I will say, you know, we, we, we have, I'd say the, the alert, the level of alertness in that area is certainly still high. Um, there, uh, there was the incident uh, outside the Capitol, I believe it was about a month, maybe a month and a half ago, where uh, a, a, a man rammed into, into one of the checkpoints. Um, you know, it's still it's still an area that's very much on high alert, despite there not being the, the visible uh, presence there once was. Turning to the politics of this, we all know that Republicans in the Senate shot down an independent commission to investigate the January 6th attack. But House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has finalized the creation of a select committee to look into the events. What's the latest there? So we know that Nancy Pelosi has selected eight of the members of that 13 members House uh, Select Committee. Uh, they include seven Democrats and, and one Republican, uh, R- Representative Liz Cheney, who notably was once the third highest ranking Republican uh, in the House. She was actually stripped of that title largely because of her refusal to stop uh, publicly talking about the events of January 6th and also uh, the role that she believes that President Trump played in that day. So she's going to be on that. Uh, House uh, Leader Kevin McCarthy does have the opportunity to appoint five members of his own party to that committee. Uh, Pelosi has ultimate say on whether or not those members make it. She has the ultimate veto power. And right now, we don't even know if uh, if he will um, actually do that. Um, so look, I mean, this was clearly not something that Republicans thought was a winning um, uh, point of focus going into the 2022 midterm election. And so you saw the Senate kind of shut shut that down. Um, but, you know, you pointed out how the Senate Republicans blocked the creation of that bipartisan committee. There were two key points of that that Republicans actually negotiated for and Democrats caved on. One, that it be equally comprised and also that both sides have equal subpoena power. And, and now we're looking at this 13 person committee, uh, which will be bipartisan, uh, but but the roles are not equally shared anymore. 
All right, ABC's Alex Prechet from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Jeff, thank you. Still to come. Masking up remains contentious. I'm Brian Calvert with the industry that, for the most part, still believes face covering should be required. When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. We are several days into Washington's new mask policy. You only have to wear one if you're not vaccinated. But as Como's Brian Calvert found out, there's at least one industry still requiring face coverings vaccine or not. It seems like a no-brainer to this woman. Our industry, it's still highly recommended. She owns a salon, hair, manis, and pedis. It's a very intimate, um, close contact service, right? We have no way of social distancing, um, and some appointments run longer than three hours. She's requiring masks for everyone. Other businesses are choosing to do the same. And customers, if you go inside any large store around here, the majority of customers are still wearing masks, even though we know many of them are vaccinated. Every single life is somebody's somebody, right? And I include myself in there that my grandmother died of COVID. Meet Crystal Mundy. She's still big on wearing a mask even though she's vaccinated. She knows others feel the same way for several reasons. They don't really know which places they can go to safely. They don't know the vaccination status of people. She's even created a website revealing what businesses in her Vancouver, B.C. neighborhood still require masks. She tells CTV the website went up this past weekend. By Wednesday, she had to pull the site's comment section because just as there's a vocal group still supportive of wearing a mask there's a very vocal group that feels otherwise and i had to pull that because people were going in and making false entries and then of course putting harmful content or you know calling people sheep telling them not to wear a mask our salon owner realizes some people are ready to ditch the face covering she's just not comfortable taking any chances yet i know that there will be a few people that are quite upset about it and it won't be forever if you still feel strongly either pro or anti-mask, an important consideration perhaps everyone can agree on right now as we make a transition is good old-fashioned capitalism. Customers can choose where they feel the most comfortable shopping, and at this point, there appears to be stores that cater to both sides of this ongoing conversation. Brian Calvert, Como News. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week and Life Beat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.